It was a regular Thursday night in Waxahachie, Texas. I don't remember much about the night leading up to a certain point, but I do remember that it was a Thursday because Thursday was 50 cent wing night at Buffalo Wild Wings. And my friends and I were regular fixtures at that promotion. We loved it. This was a semi-weekly tradition for us where we would go and partake in an unhealthy amount of wings. And this particular Thursday was just like all the other ones we had gone to. We went, we ate our wings, and then we began our journey back to campus. So myself and three of my other friends piled into a friend of mine's car and we began our drive back to our dorms. Now, at that first red light that we hit, my friend barely slowed down. He didn't stop at all as he rounded the corner. And I decided that that moment would be a good moment for me to actually buckle up. Kids out there, if you're listening, it's always a good idea to buckle up, but I was young, made some silly decisions. And so I wasn't buckled up to that point. But when he hit that red light, didn't stop at all. I was like, you know what? I probably should buckle up. And so I did. And what happened next was the closest to a near-death experience that I have ever gone through. My friend was driving at a speed that some would probably describe as way too fast. And so because of that, he started to merge into the wrong lane of traffic. And so to avoid that catastrophe, he overcorrected. But doing that sent his car straight at a curb, which we hit, which led to the car flipping over, doing one and a half full rolls, crashing through a fence, narrowly missing a massive tree, and then finally coming to a stop upside down. It was the most intense and honestly the only car accident that I have ever been in. And it was so intense that my memories of that experience are incredibly vivid. I remember the sound of the roof cracking. I remember the feeling of this car turning upside down. I remember turning to my roommate who was in the back seat next to me and noticing that he was buckled up. I remember just this weird feeling of being in a car, but the car being upside down. And I also remember this moment of joy and confusion when all of us, all four of us looked around and realized that none of us were hurt. Despite going through a car that flipped and rolled a couple times, despite landing upside down, none of us were hurt. It was incredible. And I also remember this, this moment that we all had where we were figuring out if everyone was okay, looking around, making sure, just kind of getting our bearings and trying to figure out what, what are we supposed to do next? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that or similar, but that's, that's a pretty big question in that situation. What are we going to do next? All four of us there, upside down, buckled in, just kind of dangling. And we came to the realization that the next step for us is to unbuckle, to get out of here. And so about the same time, all four of us unbuckled. But only one of us thought ahead and realized that it would be a good idea to put their hands and feet on the roof of the car, which was resting on the surface of the earth, in order to avoid just immediately falling on their head. Now, these were and are four smart guys. They generally have common sense. So it's not all that important to point out who the one was who didn't fall on their head when they unbuckled, but it was me. And so we unbuckle, we're, they all fell onto their heads. I kind of Spider-Maned my way down to the roof of the car on the ground. And then we have to figure out how are we going to get out of this car? Are we going to 
have to get cut out of this vehicle by the fire department? Are we going to have to kick our way through a windshield or will the door just open the way it would if the car wasn't upside down? Thankfully, that was exactly what happened. I was able to just open my door and we all crawled out of the car, not a scratch on our bodies, and together we vowed to never ride in a car with that friend again, which is a vow that I kept for a long time until about a month ago when I went to his bachelor party and he drove me to the airport to drop me off. I share that story with you today for one very simple reason, to make myself look cool. I survived a crazy car crash and I was calm and cool and collected under pressure and that's very impressive stuff. No, the real reason that I share that story with you today is that I think a similar thing can happen to all of us. In challenging times, all of us can tend to fix our eyes on the wrong things. See, my friends are generally smart, they're generally filled with common sense, but given the stress of the situation that we found ourselves in, they overlooked something very simple, in this case, the laws of gravity. And this, I think, happens to the best of us. In times of stress, we overlook simple things that we would normally notice, or in times of stress, we can only focus on something that we would normally be able to let go of easily. Maybe you get a terrible night's sleep and then the next day your spouse just makes one little comment and that comment eats at you all day. Under normal situations, you'd be able to let it go, you'd be able to move on, think the best of them, realize that they're just joking and let it go. But because of the lack of sleep, you just cannot move past what they said to you. Maybe for you, you've been sacrificing, putting in extra hours at work, trying to earn that promotion that you want so badly and then the time comes and you get passed over for it and you simply cannot help but to take it personally. Normally you'd be able to, you know, just move on, maybe I'll get it next time or, or have a healthy approach to it, but because of how hard you are working, you just can't look past it. Your vision is clouded by that situation. Maybe for you there's a friendship that you've had for decades and they decide to end that friendship abruptly and you can't help but take it personally. You, you have a, a super hard time with it and, and can't help but feel anything but confusion and resentment towards that friend that you were so close to for so long. Maybe for you there's a relationship that's been rocky for a really long time and you finally worked up the nerve to make it right, to build the bridge, to repair that relationship and then they pass away suddenly, leaving you without the chance to do that. See, throughout the course of our lives, we all find ourselves in similar situations to these, and we end up asking ourselves the same question. What now? On the other side of great pain, in times of great stress, what do we fix our eyes on? And this is the situation that the disciples found themselves in. In this time of Easter we just celebrated last week, think about, though, even the events leading up to Easter Sunday. For the disciples, they had been on a roller coaster three years. This man, Jesus, had come to each of them and invited them to abandon the life that they were leading up to that point. And there was something compelling enough about this man for them to take him up on that offer. And so they went everywhere with him. 
They followed him around. They went with him. And the things that they witnessed were incredible in the truest sense of that word. They saw people who were blind receive their sight. They saw people who were sick be healed. They saw people who were in oppression to demons be set completely free. They saw people who were dead be raised back to life. And so the things that they saw were incredible. And they knew that what they were seeing was huge. It was something that was bigger than them. It was something massive on a historic scale. But then this man died and all of their hope died with it. Everything that they thought was happening, they now knew could not happen. How could this man, Jesus, be all the things that he claimed to be if he was dead? I'm sure once Jesus died, they felt like the last three years of their life were a massive waste of time. I imagine that they felt foolish for wasting their time, for for going all in on this man who ended up being not what he claimed to be. My guess is that they were nervous and hiding out thinking that they were going to be targeted by the authorities next. And it's in this low moment that the best thing, better than they could have imagined, happened. It's what we celebrated last week. Easter happened. Resurrection happened. And now this guy that they had been waiting for, this guy that they had believed in, was back. He defeated death. And if he is stronger than death, then everything that he said is true. He is the Messiah. He is the one that they had been waiting for. Those three years weren't a waste of their time. But that same question would have still been there. What now? What do we do next? And so keep all of that context in mind as we look at the disciples' final interaction with Jesus. It's an event that's come to be known as the Ascension. And if you have your Bibles, this event is found in Acts chapter 1, and it's going to be in verses 6 through 11. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, that's all right. We will have it there for you to follow along. And it says this, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now, there's a lot of big stuff in this passage, notably verse 8, which is a pretty well-known verse, but a lot of scholars point to it as basically a table of contents for the entire book of Acts. As Jesus lists out those geographic regions where the disciples will go and take this message, that's exactly what goes on in the book of Acts. It's an important verse also in the life of our church as it provides the framework for our approach to missions. This event overall is widely depicted in art. It even has its own holiday in the church calendar that is celebrated 40 days after Easter Sunday, right before Pentecost Sunday. So all of that to say, this is a huge moment, not only in the life of the disciples, but in the church at large. 
And all throughout this passage, we can see the disciples grappling with that same question that we asked earlier. What now? See, I think here the disciples are disoriented. They're still reeling from everything that they've gone through. They're still feeling like they are upside down. And in this passage, through their questions and their actions, I think what we see is a reflection of our own responses to tricky moments, to times of stress, to times of going through things that we would rather not go through. See, I think we tend to be looking one way. We tend to have our eyes fixed on one thing when the whole time Jesus is inviting us to look at something else entirely. And so what, do I, want, what I want to do with our remaining time together is notice three things in this passage that the disciples were looking at, which also happen to be things that we tend to fix our eyes on. And then instead notice what Jesus invites the disciples to change their vision, change their, their eyes and their sight and look at instead. And notice that that's something that maybe Jesus is also inviting us to make a shift in our vision as well. And so the first thing for us to notice in this passage is that while we look for answers, Jesus points us to the Father. See, the disciples were trying to figure out what all of this meant. Jesus had talked about the kingdom. He had done signs and wonders that confirmed the things that he was teaching. And then he died and rose again, fulfilling a bunch of prophecy. So all of that had to mean something, right? And so they wanted answers. And so they asked Jesus a question that this passage implies they've asked multiple times before. Is now the time? Is now the time that you are going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you finally going to do what we've been expecting you to do all along? Are you finally going to operate within our expectations, within our understanding? Is now the time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel, to us? And their question reveals their mindset. See, the disciples were working from a nationalistic point of view. They were concerned with themselves, their country, their people, and potentially even their own positions of power. See, if Jesus answers yes, if now is the time that he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel, and these are the guys who have been with Jesus for three years, these are the guys who are Jesus's closest associates, then it stands to reason that they are in line for a sizable promotion. And it's also not that surprising that they're asking this question, because remember, these are the same guys who not much earlier had been jockeying for position, asking Jesus, can we be the ones at your right hand in the foremost position of power underneath of you. And so they ask Jesus this question again, but Jesus doesn't give them the answer that they want. In fact, the answer that Jesus gives them reveals that they're still thinking too small, that their focus is still too narrow. See, the disciples are expecting that the kingdom will be restored to Israel, but God is expanding the kingdom to the entire world. See, these disciples, they're thinking about getting power for themselves, but God is about to give them power for the sake of others. And I think that there is an important lesson here for us. See, the disciples wanted answers in the wake of Jesus's death and resurrection, which is understandable, but they didn't get the answer that they wanted. And how about you? How often do you get the answer from Jesus that you want? 
If I'm honest, for me, I don't get the answer from Jesus that I want. I get it way less frequently than I would prefer. See, we ask Jesus all the time, and asking Jesus questions, I don't think, is the problem. Jesus, when will my wayward child find their way home to you? Jesus, when will you finally heal me? Jesus, why did you allow my marriage to fall apart? Jesus, how am I going to afford the next few months? And how often do you get the answer that you want to those questions? Could it be, though, that the same dynamic, that the reason that we don't get the answer that we want is the same reason that the disciples didn't get the answer that they wanted? Could it be that we don't get the answer that we want because we are thinking too small? Could it be that our eyes are fixed on the wrong things? Could it be that we're holding too tightly to something that Jesus ultimately wants us to let go of? Or could it be that we're focused on something that Jesus doesn't want us to be focused on and that there's something bigger and better that he wants us to look to instead? See, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. The disciples' minds were firmly set on things that are on earth. They were focused on power. They were focused on having a plan. They were focused on that feeling of having some semblance of control when you know what's going to happen next. They were focused on figuring out answers. And Jesus was nudging them towards what Paul would then later write, to set their minds higher, to fix their eyes on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And I think that Jesus is inviting us to do the same thing, to set our minds on something higher, to fix our eyes beyond our immediate situation, and to instead trust that the Father who has all the authority has the answer that we need. It maybe won't be the answer that we want, but it will be the answer that we need. All we need to do is trust him. The next thing that we notice in this passage is that while we want to stay in our comfort zone, Jesus sends us the comforter. See, after setting the disciples straight about their narrow mindset and their overeager curiosity about the restoration of the kingdom, Jesus then moves into what is actually going to happen next for them. He starts off by informing them that they will be his witnesses. But hold up, aren't they already Jesus's witnesses? I mean, they had spent three years literally witnessing everything that Jesus did and said. And now they were going to be some of the only people to witness Jesus alive after his death, witness him in his resurrection body. And I think that's certainly part of what Jesus is saying, that these 11 disciples will carry everything that they've witnessed previously. All the miracles, all the healings, all the restoration, all the resurrection, they will carry all of the things that they witnessed, but then Jesus will add in the power from the Holy Spirit and their job will be take all the things that they've witnessed and the power of the Holy Spirit and move into an expanded target of people and be witnesses to them. See, they were previously witnesses of Jesus's life and teaching. Now they will be witnesses about his life and teaching. See, I think something that we commonly do, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, is that we read the Bible as history. And that's good because these are historical 
events. But when we read the Bible as history, when we read it as an unfolding narrative that we're familiar with, we know what event follows this event and we know what's coming next, what we can tend to miss out on when we do that is how the people that these events were happening to would have actually felt. And so let's think through what would the disciples have been feeling in this experience. I think it would have been one thing for them to follow Jesus when he initially called all of them to accept Jesus's invitation to leave their lives and travel around Galilee with him. That's one thing because everywhere that they went for those three years was within walking distance of their former lives, of the careers they left behind, of everyone that they knew. It was within walking distance of all of that. And their obedience in that time was admirable. The sacrifices that they made there was notable for sure. But what Jesus was inviting them into now was something totally different. Jerusalem, I mean, yeah, that's, that's cool. All right, Jesus, I'm with you. But Samaria, that's, that's getting a bit farther away, probably a bit more uh, uncomfortable with that. The ends, the ends of the earth, like what does that even mean? How far is the ends of the earth? That's, that's pretty far away from where we are. And so I imagine that there was some hesitation here for the disciple, even if it was only internal. I imagine they had a number of questions, not least of which was, how are we going to afford to get to the ends of the earth? After all, we've been unemployed following Jesus around for three years. How are we going to afford this now? Another big question I imagine was probably on their minds is, Jesus, are you not going to be coming with us? I mean, I'm assuming not, since you're actively disappearing into a different dimension in front of our eyes as we speak. And so I think the disciples were having their comfort zone destroyed a little bit. They were being pushed out of their comfort zone. But I don't think Jesus was pushing them out of their comfort zone just for fun. And he certainly wasn't sending them out into the unknown all on their own. The thing that we need to notice is in the first part of that verse where Jesus tells them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now, when I was in Bible college, I never actually took any original language classes, so no Greek, no Hebrew. Uh, I was a little bit too lazy. It's maybe my biggest regret about my time in Bible college. I wasn't cool enough to take them however we want to describe it. But while I was there, I learned an appreciation for the original languages and learned just enough tools to be dangerous with them. But the first Greek word I ever learned actually happened long before I was college age. In this verse, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that verse was actually one of my grandpa's favorite verses of all time, and he was the pastor of the church that I grew up in. So I heard so many uh, sermons on this verse that it's still one of the main verses that I have memorized in my mind. Even today, reading through this passage in the NRSV was a little bit challenging because I have this verse still memorized in the King James Version, But the first Greek that I ever learned was from my grandpa in this verse, and it's the word dudamis or dynamis. It's the word that's translated here as power. And that word power means the potentiality to exert force in performing some function. The disciples were being sent out of their comfort zone, but Jesus promises that they will be joined by the Holy Spirit, who earlier Jesus had referred to as the comforter. 
It is the Holy Spirit who would grant them the power, the potentiality to exert force in performing the function that Jesus was giving them, in the function of sharing Jesus's life and teaching with the nations. See, the Holy Spirit for them would be God's empowering presence, going with them, flowing through them, and equipping them to do what Jesus had invited them to do and asked them to do. The Holy Spirit for us is the same way. The Holy Spirit is God's personal presence moving through the world and in the lives of his people. Now, I don't know about you, but the hesitation that I imagine the disciples had, I resonate so much with that. I have a strong desire to at all times remain in my comfort zone. I don't like to branch out. I don't like to try new things. I prefer the things that I like, and I almost always stick to what I know. But what I've discovered is that in following Jesus, the places that he asks me to follow him to are often so far outside of my comfort zone. And Jesus frequently pushes me into the unknown. And without the Holy Spirit, without God's empowering presence, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be standing here in front of this camera for you today. I just could not do it without God's empowering presence. And so my question is, where in your life is Jesus inviting you to step out of your comfort zone and into the unknown with the help of his empowering presence? What function is Jesus asking you to do that can only be done through the Spirit's power? And then the last vision shift that we see in this passage is that while we focus on absence, Jesus invites us into his presence. See, we've done this, we've done this exercise together before, but when reading a passage of scripture, I think something that can be incredibly helpful is to look out for words or phrases that are similar or repeat each other. Because often a biblical author will repeat themselves to try to really get their point across. So in just these last three verses of this passage, pay attention to how many times Luke uses words about seeing or sight or vision. And actually, let's just go through it together. Luke writes that Jesus began ascending as the disciples were watching. He writes that the cloud took Jesus out of their sight. It says that they were gazing up toward heaven, and then the angels show up, and they stood while the disciples stood looking toward heaven. And then the angels comfort the disciples that Jesus will return to them in the same way that they saw him go. See, here Luke really wants us to notice what it is that the disciples are looking at. And what the disciples' eyes are fixed on is absence. Jesus is gone again. They just went through this time of losing Jesus, of having him not there with him, and they're just coming off a little over a month of solid quality time with Jesus, eating fish with him in his resurrected body, just an incredible post-resurrection hangout. But now Jesus is gone again. And so the disciples are staring in disbelief as he goes farther and farther out of sight. And then they keep staring into the space where Jesus once was. See, after Jesus' death, they had to come to grips with Jesus' absence. They thought that was it, that he was gone for good. But as we celebrated last week, Jesus didn't stay absent. 
he came back to life and they got to enjoy a little over a month with him, enjoying his presence. But now again, he's gone. And so I imagine that they stay staring so long into that, that void where Jesus was because they can't believe it. They're staring and straining to see Jesus as long as possible. And even after they can't see him anymore, they keep looking anyway. Their eyes were fixed upward, concerned by absence instead of looking forward to presence. And I think many of us can be guilty of the same thing. Where in your life are you so concerned by Jesus' absence that you're missing out on his presence? And could it be tied to that first point that we made? Could we be so focused on trying to find answers that we miss out on where God is currently at work in our lives? Maybe for us, our ability to experience God's presence is being drowned out by distraction. Or maybe it's an absence of a different kind, of of a loss of a loved one or something of that nature that's causing us to not be able to fully embrace God's presence. That's what the disciples were experiencing. They were so focused on absence that they missed out on presence. But the promise for them is the same promise that is for us, that Jesus is with us even to the ends of the age. And so to close today, I want to suggest one small thing for all of us to put into practice to shift from what our eyes are currently fixed on and instead begin to look where Jesus wants us to. So for each of the three points that we've looked at, I'll have one word with some practical ideas for us to take this sermon with us and to put it into practice in our lives. And the first word is participation. In order to look to the Father rather than for answers, in order to keep our minds on things above rather than things that are on earth. We should participate in the life that God has for us. A simple phrase that we can call this is a with God life. We should aim to live a with God life. And that's exactly what it sounds like, but let's have a fun little definition together for a with God life. A with God life is one where we aim to live with an inward reality of single-hearted devotion and focus upon God and his kingdom. It's a life where we keep God before our minds in every decision we make, in every relationship that we have, in every moment of our day. We return our minds again and again to the goodness of God, to the presence of God, to the fact that he is with us and is a part of our life. We view every aspect of our life as if God is there with us because he ultimately is. And when we do that, when we focus on the Father by living a with God life of participation with him, the answers that we were looking for tend to be figured out on their own. The second word for us today is invitation. To step out of our comfort zone with the help of the comforter, we need to learn the art of invitation. Growing up, one of the biggest things that I was told about the Holy Spirit is that he's a gentleman. Now, that phrase doesn't necessarily mean that the Holy Spirit is a man or that he's going to hold the door open for you or that he's chivalrous in whatever way that we understand that term. The main idea behind that phrase is that the third person of the Trinity is non-coercive, that the Holy Spirit definitely does invite us out of our comfort zone, 
but he's not going to force us to do something that we don't want to do. Stepping out of our comfort zone is by definition uncomfortable. That's, that's pretty obvious. But being invited by the Spirit of God to do something that he will then empower you to do is one of the greatest adventures that you can have in this life. And so I challenge you to enter into this life of mutual invitation. As you listen to the voice of Jesus inviting you to do things that maybe make you uncomfortable, I challenge you to simply do it, to obey, to do what you're being invited to do, but then return that invitation and invite the Holy Spirit to be the one who empowers you and gives you the strength and the courage and the ability to do what it is that Jesus is asking you to do. And then lastly, the last word for us, we've got participation, invitation. The last word is celebration. To shift our focus from absence to presence, it's important to start small. And the reality is, is that for each and every one of us today, wherever you're watching from, wherever you are right now, whatever's going on in your life right now, God is at work in your life. Regardless of how far along you are in your journey with Jesus, regardless of how old you are, regardless of how much you may feel it in the moment, regardless of anything at all, God is at work in your life. And that's something to celebrate but we so often miss it. I so often miss that God is at work in my life. And so we start small. Look for small areas in your life that could be interpreted as the hand of God moving on your behalf. Take a deep breath in. That is something to celebrate. You are alive and breathing because God sustains the universe and is allowing you to take another breath and live another day. You have a place to sleep at night. You have people in your life who care about you. You have a church community who cares about your well-being. All of these things are things that we can celebrate. And the more that we thank God for the ways that he is at work in our life, the more that we celebrate what he's done for us, the more things that we notice, the more we will become aware of his presence in our life and the less we will perceive absence. As Psalm 139 verse 7 asks, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? And the answer to those questions is nowhere. There is nowhere we can go where God is not at work in our lives. There is nowhere where we can go that God is not there with us. And so today, I don't know where this lands for you. I don't know what you may be having your eyes so fixed on that you're missing out on other things, but I do know that Jesus has the invitation for all of us to shift our focus and to fix our eyes on him. And so let's pray together and invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word and take the things that we've learned from this passage with us as we go about our routines this week. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great time that we've had together. Thank you for the lessons that we can learn from your ascension. Thank you that you rose from the dead, that you, that you ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that because of that, we can speak to you. And I pray that this morning, as we look to you, I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on you, that we would be able to look beyond the things that maybe we're, we're too focused on right now at the cost of other things that we are missing 
out on. And I pray that wherever this lands for each and every individual watching today, wherever they are, whatever they're going through, I pray that you would speak right now to them and invite them onto this journey with you, that you would invite them deeper into a relationship with you, and that you would help us to put this message into practice, that you would bring us into a life of participation with you, that you would bring us into a life of invitation where we follow you and we invite the Holy Spirit to give us the power and equip us to do what you have asked us to do. And I pray that you would help us to enter into a deeper life of celebration where we, we celebrate the good things that you have done and will do for us. We praise you for who you are and pray that you would go with us as we go about the rest of our day. In your name we pray. Amen.